Hey everyone, welcome to episode 106 of Medusa's Cascade Collateral Damage and the fourth arc episode. I'm your friendly neighborhood DM Tom, and I've got a few things to cover before we get into this speed run of the next eight episodes of the campaign. First and foremost, thank you for sticking with us for 105 episodes. It's bonkers that we're this far in, and it's only going to get longer and, and crazier and uncut, so stick around for the ride uh second we have uh switched to a bi-weekly format uh for the actual play so not next week but the week after the fifth arc episode will be released and it will cover episodes 30 through 37 this next arc after this one is probably one of my favorites so buckle up uh this is for logistical reasons and for some mental health reasons as well. Uh, on the bright side, uh, we will be premiering some new content starting at the beginning of the upcoming year, which is uh, like tomorrow. Uh, premiering next week, Across the Plains will be uh, a bi-weekly show where myself and two cast members uh, are writing lore, roundtable style, for the three prime material planes that the campaign takes place in. Uh, third, if you have the opportunity, please check out our social media accounts on most of the major platforms. Uh, just search for the Medusa's Cascade on the platform and give us a follow. We'll have some art and animatics from the early phases of the animation project that has spawned from the campaign. It's some really cool stuff and worth your time to check out. Uh, finally, if you're on uh, a streaming platform, especially Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please take a few minutes to rate, review, and subscribe. It doesn't seem like a whole lot, but it really does help get the podcast out there for other people to discover, and we would definitely appreciate the love and support. So, without further ado, let's get into the fourth arc episode, uh, The Task at Hand. Aqua sobers up. What you can't handle talking to me? Now that we're both sober, face me, Galahad. <clears throat> I am confused and slightly amused. I don't take We Aqua seriously. Really? Without my stuff on? I asked. What? You need a javelin? We Aqua forms a nice javelin using the shape of water and tosses it to, to me. The rest of the party riots like high schoolers witnessing a fight in the playground. Our girl cups his hand and shouts, He's calling you out! Wee Aqua spreads his arms out wide, taunting, Go for it! 
JM abruptly chimes in. Hey, hey, hey. The arena is downstairs if you want to fight. Weaqua walks downstairs. Zex goes from being amused to concerned. JM walks by Zex, Argyle, and Kyver and says, Ten gold on the druid, then walks downstairs. Argyle rushes downstairs to take a seat. While everyone rushes down to see the fight, Kyver looks at the paper JM gave to him and goes to his room. Weaqua and myself step into the arena. There are potions lining the shelves all over the room. Zex looks over to the JM. What are the rules? Jam replies, first of all, noticing the stack of potions, serious comments. Good, I don't gotta heal nobody. Then sips his coffee. Have to cure wounds if anything gets too far, Zex mentions. I wouldn't let it get that far, Jam reassures Zex. Sirius says disappointed, oh, that's no fun. God damn it, Sirius, Zex replies. I'm betting 15 on Wee Aqua, Argyle makes a bet. Ooh, 15 on Wee Aqua? JM notes. The fight starts with me using my conquering presence, but Wee Aqua is unaffected. They retaliate with a push, trying to goad me into action. Fight me, the druid demands. I try to trip him, but unsuccessfully. Wee Aqua summons their flaming scimitar and attacks the paladin. Hit me, the druid demands again. Again, I try to trip Wee Aqua, and again, it is unsuccessful. The friendly druid begins to tense and quiet as they go into a rage, slashing across me with their flaming scimitar. I begin to try slashing at Weaqua with Kana's fury. As the fight continues, Zex works his way up to the workshop to inform Shanks and Atros of what is going on. Shanks is working analyzing the halfling coffee. He's able to distill it down to a pure form, but is not satisfied. He then looks to Atros and confesses that he read the letter that the Kenku had written. Are you going to try and stop me? Atros asks. On the contrary, Shanks is willing to help him. He speaks vaguely about a group that he was once part of that he wishes he could destroy. The fight ends with Weaqua casting Hold Person, telling, telling me that he forgives me, hugging me, and holding the spell until it ends. At this point, everyone feels the floor shake slightly, as if the tavern is touching down somewhere. No one wins, and the group decides to give Welby the money from the wages as an apology. Eventually, the party makes its way upstairs. There is a knock at the front door of the tavern. Zex answers the door, opening it to find a small, pale man dressed in former wear. Are you the people that helped my lord? The man says. I'm sorry, the tabaxi replies. You helped my lord find his bride. The man clarifies, handing him a rectangular card. Zex grabs it and blindly hands it back to whoever is behind him. Who's your lord? Zex asks as the mysterious man. With a smile, the man replies, Why, Lord Strahd von Zarovich. And with this, he vanishes. Zex immediately activates his primeval awareness. Though there are pings of undead in the area, nothing as powerful as Strahd is present. There is a larger presence of undead a bit further out, presuming it's the giant tree from before. Duel goes and scouts it out. When he comes back, it's confirmed that it is the tree. The party reads the card and says that it is an invitation to the wedding of Strahd and Irina taking place in two weeks. Chaos ensues, but eventually the party makes its way out into the field of the winery. As they emerge, Atros summons his eldritch cannon onto his mechanical owl. Several blights and druids are making their way toward them, and the party makes a quick work of them. They make their way to the wagon with wine barrels on it and make a break for the exit. Zex and Shanks jump into the front of the cart. 
Uyakwa summons horses for the party and they're off to the races. Exiting the building, they feel and hear a rumble coming from the south. Kyra notices a massive tree that is animated and heading for the party. Uyakwa tries to slow its advances by summoning fire, but a massive root emerges from the ground and grapples the druid. I, I see this, and I turn my horse to rescue my friend, swinging Connor's fury and severing the root's grasp. I pull the druid out of midair and seat them on my horse, racing back toward the party. The party begins to take pot shots of the tree, but it doesn't relent. Argyle has an idea, and as Kyra shoots his bow, he casts darkness on it. The shot is a direct hit and disorients the tree long enough for the party to escape. The party rides through the forest and continues into the night. There are some conversations among the party. They're still working through the ordeal of the constable and the information that they received after. Argyle talks about the dream he had the night before. He mentions the crest in the letter, a 13-pointed star made from swords. Atris recognizes the symbol. It reminds him of the Telltale Guild and the deal he made to fulfill his promise of revenge. He tells Argyle that they may be dealing with the same entity, a greater demon by the name of Ariok. Ariok is an Archduke of the Abyss. If she is where he is, alone right now with our strength and capacity, we won't be able to simply get her back. But I may have a way of reaching out to him. Argyle thanks him for his offer and tells the Kenku that he will take him up on it if they make it through to the end of this current mission. Kyver, still distraught about the information he received in the tavern, carves the number 565 into the side of the wagon. As they continue into the night, Astros acts serious for his shield. He takes his tinker's tools and infuses magic into it, making it a repulsion shield. Glad breaks into a small speech about what her original goals were. She talks about how it was really about finding her place in her family again. She tells them that she sees them as her family. Argyle tells her, jokingly, that he will have her back as long as she has the bag of money that JM gave to them. Some shenanigans entail a wrestling match between Kyra and Sirius that has Kyra get thrown off his horse. It ends, though, with the rogue kneeing the cleric in the groin as payback. Uyakwa apologizes to me for how they reacted to the whole situation in the tavern. I assure them that it's okay, that their feelings are valid, but wonders why the druid was so angry. Uyakwa confesses that some in the party are just comrades to them, but others are more than that. They reconcile their differences, and the conversation changes to Galahad Cipher. After lots of frustration and setbacks, he was able to decode it. It reads, Chaos abounds, my sister plots, collateral damage, daughters of creation. Uyakwa is shocked by the last line, and they explain what they learned from their research in the tavern. I wonder if the daughters could be connected to Tiamat, the sister mentioned in the code. The druid is pretty sure that they are separate things entirely. The party finally makes it back to the city gate of Kresik. Zex informs them that they are there with the village's wine delivery. The burgomeister greets them again and gives them passage into the village. They inform him of the moving tree threat outside the walls. He doesn't seem too distraught by the possible threat. That is why we never go outside the walls. Zack shrugs it off and asks him if the party can have a place to stay, and if the town has a marketplace where they can get goods. He directs them to an empty house in the village, but as for a marketplace, there isn't one in town. However, Velaki does have one. The party inquires uh, about the land, but the Burgermeister doesn't know a whole lot. Uh, we don't leave the walls. There are wolves and... Werewolves, and 
I am sorry, I, I don't have much information. Many of us have lived here for generations and don't know much about outside of the walls. Uh, I've been here all my life actually, like my forefathers who founded the village. And we Aqua naively chimes in asking, you have forefathers? The Burgermeister gives a questioning look and whispers to Zex, the blue one. He's strange. Zex asks if there is a sage or historian who might know more about the land, attempting slyly to get more information on Strahd. The Burgermeister tells them about the abbot who lives in the abbey on the hill. However, he doesn't fully trust him because he hasn't aged in over a hundred years. In addition, they learn that the abbey was named for the Abbey of St. Markovia. Uh, the Markovians stood against Strahd and stormed Castle Ravenloft to fight. Uh, however, there were no survivors. The abbey was also once a hospital before the mist came. It's late and the party retires to their lodging to rest and prepare. Shanks and Atros make Atros while Weaqua and Galahad chop wood for a fire. Zex and Glad talk about the Archfey, King Oberon. Zex believes that he might be linked to his forgotten past, and Glad has to appear before the Seely Court, uh, on or before the receding moon, is debating leaving the party to fulfill her quest. She feels that it's imperative and wishes that the team would accompany her, but also understands that if she has to go alone, she will. Glad believes that if Zex joins her, the team will follow, but Zex still feels that he doesn't have much control over the team. He also feels that they should deal with Strahd first. He tries his best to validate Glad and assure her that he will help her, but it's clear that he's determined to defeat Strahd. Glad reluctantly agrees. Yeah, let's go find out what those tarot cards mean. Gathering with the rest of the party, they go over the tarot cards once again and uh, begin to decide what their next move is. While they're planning, Atros looks at Shanks, uh, takes out his ball bearings, and asks if he can put acid in the hollow center. We Aqua also gives him his ball bearings. Uh, Shanks' eyes light up immediately, and he runs over to his tools and starts making acid. Zex asks if Atros could do something with his caltrips, and he starts to draw plans using them. The rest of the party is amazed by the creativity that he's come up with. They're curious about the Abbey, Weaqua and Zex send out Franchise and Duo to scope out the location. Weaqua uses magic to see through Franchise's eyes. They see guards, but not much else. The party continues to plan, but aboard Weaqua asks Kyver to do some training drills outside. Weaqua puts on a blindfold and asks for Kyver to sneak up on him successfully, and Kyver does so with ease, but after a while he grows bored and sneaks off into the woods. Marco! Marco! Weaqua peeks under his blindfold. On the floor, or rather on the ground, is a note with a word. Polo. Weaqua turns into a panther and begins to track the scent of Kyver. Now, the tabaxi hides his tracks, but Weaqua is able to pick up on the details that he's missed. Running through the woods, Kyver finds a house and sneaks in. Although the modest home doesn't look like it would really contain any valuables, 
He continues to look around, stealthily. Wiyakwa follows him, though, and while looking around, Kyber gets the distinct sense that there's someone behind him. He returns to his senses and leaves the house. Wiyakwa, remaining hidden, watches while Kyber leaves. Before he leaves the home himself, uh, he takes a look around to ensure Kyber didn't disturb the people who live there. Once they're satisfied, they continue to follow Kyber. They find Kyber sitting on the front of their lodging uh, and just sort of staring up into the sky. Wiyakwa rubs their head on Kyber's shoulder and then transforms back to normal. You want to talk about it? Wiyakwa asks. Tonight was a good night, Kyber replies nonchalantly. Tonight was supposed to be a trust exercise, just so you know, Wiyakwa says, and then walks inside to the lodge. Before he goes in, Kyber says, Polo. Wiyakwa replies, Marco, and shuts the door. Shanks notices Wiyakwa coming in without Kyber. He sees that the druid is unnerved, sitting in the corner of the empty house. Shanks offers his flask, and Wiyakwa takes it, saying thank you, but places it on the floor next to him. They tell the archer what happened, and considers their reckless actions. Outside, Kyber starts to carve a poem on the exterior of the house. Once he's satisfied, he heads to sleep along with the rest of the party. In the morning, Galahad wakes before everyone and starts to head towards the pool of the Morning Lord. Shanks notices him and asks to join. Galahad agrees and they head towards the pool where he praised the Morning Lord. Shanks watches and once the Goliath has finished his prayers, he asks him about his faith. Shanks wonders how he could still have faith after his god left him in prison for 50 years. Galahad feels that he had to go through that trial to become a better paladin. Shanks is jaded from his religious upbringing, feeling that the religious leaders that he was around were really only there for themselves. Despite that, he admires Galahad's faith and commitment to Bahamut. The Goliath tells him religion and faith are not the same, and acknowledges that there are some people out there using God as an excuse to justify wrongful actions or personal agendas. People might even judge him as one of those people, but his relationship with his God is personal and helps him on his own journey. Galahad also apologizes to Shanks on behalf of his former religious leaders. Turning back to the pool, Galahad takes his sword, cuts his hand, and places the holy water from the pool in his wound. Once everyone wakes, the party, except for Glad, heads to the abbey to speak to the abbot. When they arrive, the party gets the attention of two wayward guards. The team notes them as mongrel folk, humanoid creatures with different animal body parts. Argyle asks Kyver sarcastically, is, uh, is this what happens when you crossbreed? And Kyver replies, I don't know, maybe ask your mom. After an awkward interrogation by the mongrel folk, uh, the guards reluctantly uh, allow them in, and as the party gets escorted into the abbey, Galahad leans over and whispers to Zex, telling him that this place is giving him a bad feeling. Shanks is also unsettled by the whole situation. 
They're led into a courtyard, and they see a mongrel Batwoman chained and screaming. The party tries to aid in helping the woman, but fails. She screams and scurries away from them. Uh, Shanks sneaks away from the group to peer into the windows, and uh, while he's in the courtyard, he sees several different rooms, including what looks like a summoning circle. Shanks believes that there might be a spell being cast, but without Glad, they really have no idea what's happening. The party is led then into the main hall of the abbey. Gentle sounding music trickles down from above, played on a single stringed instrument by some unseen master. The ground floor is one large 50 foot square room with arched leaded glass windows. A cauldron sits on an iron rack above a fire in a hearth, while above the fireplace mantle hangs a golden disc engraved with the symbol of the sun. In one corner, a wooden staircase leads up to another level, while in another corner, a stone staircase descends into darkness. Several chairs surround a wooden table that stretches nearly the room's length. Wooden dishware and gold candelabras are neatly arranged on the table. Standing behind this is a young woman with alabaster skin dressed in a torn and soiled red gown. Her auburn hair is neatly bundled so as not to touch her soft shoulders. She seems lost in her thoughts. The party begins to realize this woman is a flesh golem when they hear footsteps on the stairs behind them. A handsome young man ascends the stairs in a brown monk's garb, with a wooden holy symbol that resembles the sun. He introduces himself as the abbot, and asks what the party wants to talk to him about. The group seeks information about the lands of Barovia. The rumors of his aging, or lack thereof, is brought up as well. The abbot speaks on the small town of Valachia, and of the castle Ravenloft. He also denies the rumors about his youth. The party continues to question him about his intentions. He points out that the woman that is sitting before them was made to be Strahd's bride. This catches the party off guard. They delicately break the news that Strahd is already betrothed to be married. He refutes this and asks for proof. Shanks offers up the invitation and the abbot snatches it from his hand. The party can see that, as he is reading it, his happy demeanor is quickly fracturing. They continue to question him and push him for information. As this all occurs, Shanks begins to piece things together. The abbot is neither friend nor foe. He is genuinely trying to help the situation, however, misguided in his attempts. Probing further, the party asks him about his creations that are in the other areas of the Abbey. He tells them that they are unfortunate early experiments that eventually led to the woman sitting in front of them. They continue to question and pry. Atros asks about Tatiana and if he has seen her before, though the abbot has only heard of a description. 
the artificer uses minor illusion and shows him an image of Irina and the priest is taken aback. The two look nearly identical based on the descriptions. Weakwa begins to push the boundaries and tries to touch the woman. The abbot becomes incredibly defensive, shouting that she is not to be touched. Shanks asks the abbot directly about his creations. The abbot tells him that they're a family native to Kresik, the Bellevues. They sought their augmentations because of a need to be perfect. Though, Abbott admits that the family's idea of perfect is fucked up. A man, known at the time as Von Holt, came to the Abbey to help with the Bellevue's improvements. This man turned out to be Strahd, and it was at the point where the Abbot knew that he couldn't destroy the vampire. His solution became giving him something else to focus on, a bride, and hopefully trying to persuade the dark powers to leave Strahd be. Zex brings up the Vasanti and some of the descriptions of the tarot cards. One description is confirmed by the abbot to be Castle Ravenloft. Another is thought to be the home of the Order of the Silver Dragon, Argon Vostolt. The abbot goes on to posit that the Vasanti seem to be able to journey in and out of Barovia as they please. He offers the party a tour of the abbey, but the party is unsure. After some discussion, they decide to decline the offer. However, before the party leaves the abbey, they are asked if they could get the abbot into the wedding somehow. The group says that they're not sure, but we'll look into it for him. He even offers to grant them a favor. He gives them a sending stone to keep in touch, and with that the party leaves the Abbey. The party meets back with Glad on their way down from the Abbey and immediately wants to get out of Kresik. They make their way out, stopping at the Burgermeister's home. The party asks if there are any other works that can be done for him and the village. He mentions that helping the Martikovs get their winery running again would be beneficial to all. And then, he comments on the party having just come from the Abbey. He asks what the Abbot is doing up there, and Shanks replies coldly that he's been making mongrels with spare parts. The Burgermeister nods his head and laments that this must be why the village's dead go missing. If you are looking for something to do for me, I would very much like to not have the dead of my town taken from their loved ones. The group exchanges looks and Argyle pipes up. It's not our problem. The party ends up deciding to clear the vineyard before they take on anything else. The Burgermeister gives them the cart they delivered the wine on and they begin to make their way back to the vineyard. In transit, the party talks about 
potentially setting the abbot and Strahd against each other. This could be a situation that could manipulate in their favor. Miyakwa has a brilliant idea of forging a copy of the invitation to facilitate this plan. As the group continues further, the sun begins to set, and eventually they stop close to the vineyard to rest for the night. The party breaks into two groups for watch, Galahad and Wiakwa on the first shift, Shanks and Zex on the second. Wiakwa and Galahad have a humorous exchange that turns serious during their shift. Galahad gives Wiakwa a bit of a rundown of his past, leaves his clan, meets his mentor, Antonius, trains with him, and finally runs into the party, dedicating a year to each tenant of his oath, the oath of conquest, three in total. He pulls up his sleeve and reveals a branding of them on his forearm. He laments that he hasn't truly accomplished anything. Liaqua assures him that things that he has already accomplished are good and admirable. Just because his culture is based heavily on deeds doesn't discount the things to which he has pledged his life. The druid and the paladin take their rest, and the two archers take over the watch. Shanks and Zex have a conversation that gets philosophical. The elf admits to his starting to care about the other party members and that it scares him. With Zex probing a bit more for information, Shanks reveals that he was once part of a very devastating group of people that he has been trying to get away from. He feels a bit of kinship with Atros because of their disillusionment from being with this group. The lines have become blurry and he's had to draw his own on occasion. Zex probes deeper and asks about his moral compass. This pushes things to a more personal direction. He talks about being considered a mixed blood, a ladrin and wild elf. He was looked down upon and called an abomination at times. The mixture of the two things that should never have been. Seeing the things that he saw at the Abbey, the things that he was likened to, was beyond startling. Shanks makes no qualms about what he would like to do to the Abbot, but doesn't think the group would agree with his methods. The subject changes to religion. Shanks is a man of logic and reason. Faith, without basis, is something he can't really get behind. Kyver has another dark vision from the entity that offered him power. Power in exchange for Strahd and the party's demise. With the resurfacing of his early life, the idea of power over humans is more appetizing than ever. The entity reminds him of the vaults made of amber. Kyber takes the dagger, bloodlust, and carves the words, the vaults, into his forearm. 
The wounds heal almost instantly into barely noticeable scars. It must be before the wedding. He cannot have a bride, the entity whispers. With these words, the visions fade and Kyver awakens in the rain. Returning to the vineyard, Damien is upset with the party for leaving for several weeks without completing the job. They get into a heated disagreement about the logistics of the mission, and Damien goes as far as to call Argyle a racial slur, demon, uh, while addressing him. Weakwa is not one for sitting back and letting people disrespect their friends, so they threaten him with a dagger and ask them to be very careful about their words. The conflict, though, soon subsides, and Weakwa offers food and water as an apology. While leaving, Argyle shoulder checks Damien, and Kyver, who is still dazed from his vision, uh, glares at the man, but then sees him turn into a raven and fly away. The party races towards the tree blight and druids surrounding the winery. Weakwa summons four bears to attack the tree. It crushes one of them while the other three claw and bite at the bark and branches. The rain continues to pour, and Glad calls a bolt of lightning from the sky and strikes the tree. Exploding, it smolders and falls to the ground. Uh, Shanks uses Mind's Eye and his acid arrows to take lo a long-distance shot at the fallen tree. His shot hits the mark, burning the tree from the inside out. Uh, the party makes quick work out of the rest of the druids. Kyver, however, seems to be off of his game and is uh, unnerved by the whole situation. Checking the smoldering tree blight, they notice that arcane runes have been carved into it. They make their way into the winery to clear out any remaining druids. They split up and search the building cautiously. On the search through the winery, uh, Kyver is startled by Galahad and almost attacks him. Paladin doesn't mention anything, but makes a note that something is up with Kyver. Uh, elsewhere, Shanks comes across a, a magical staff in the winch room uh, over the carriage bay. He suggests to Argyle that uh, a spellcaster should come and examine it before anyone touches it. The snarky uh, tiefling agrees, uh, walking up to the nearest window and breaking it, calling to the casters to come and examine what they just found. Weakwa, Atros, and Glad uh, come to check it out, and they learn that it is fairly powerful and possibly could be helpful for later. Uh, the building now, though, is clear of druids and blights. Walking out, uh, Weakwa goes to Kyver, who is on the side of the winery. Uh, he asks uh, if he stole anything. Kyver uh, takes out his Medusa's token and says to give it to Glad. Uh, Weakwa declines and says that he should do it himself. Kyver then walks away from Weakwa wordlessly and goes uh, back into sort of a, a dazed state. The normally peaceful water genasi pushes the tabaxi, but Kyver doesn't react. Weakwa then trips Kyver, and the two start to get into a little bit of a tussle on the floor. Weakwa shouts, What is going on with you? And finally, Kyver opens up about his past. He just starts spilling everything. He tells the druid that his father uh, was betrayed by humans. He unfortunately witnessed his father's head on a spike. 
The noblemen of his homeland sent out an order to raid his village, slaughtering his people and capturing him and other tabaxi children. He spent 565 days in slave pits before he was free. I know you must think less of me, Kyver says. Um, Wiyakwa tries to reassure him that they don't feel that way, and they just want to understand him. Understand this. I'm an evil son of a bitch, Kyver states. Uh, Wiyakwa disagrees and says if Kyver is evil, he would have killed them. Kyver says nothing and walks back to the cart. They travel back over to Damien, and once they inform him that his winery is cleared, uh, he actually apologizes for his behavior and asks what is the nature of their visit. Uh, after noticing how Damien reacts to the topic of Strahd, uh, they feel it's safe to tell him that they are here to rid the land of said Strahd. Uh, Mardikov, Damien, uh, offers his help. He and his people are willing to help aid in Strahd's expulsion. Uh, Zex then asks him if he knows of Bubble Saga. Damien is visibly unnerved by the name, and Wiakwa, seeing Glad once cast calm motions, goes over to him places their hand on their on his chest and says calm although Wiakwa doesn't actually have the spell it does somehow work and Mardikov relaxes he tells the party what he knows and the location of Babla Saga uh, meanwhile Glad noticing how off Kyver is follows him to the back of the vineyard he's staring up into the sky kind of babbling about being an innocent child. Then he whips his dagger out in a daze, pointed towards Glad. Glad asks him if he's okay, and then Kyver drops to his knees, shivering. The dagger falls out of his hand, and he cries, Help me! Glad looks to see if anyone else sees this. Shanks and Wiyakwa run over to aid her. Glad looks him over to see if she has any magic that could help, but... She has nothing that can heal what is obviously emotional trauma. She tells him, We can't help you if you don't open up to us. Kyver, still dazed, asks, What makes a person evil? She says, I think we all make mistakes, and we all have trauma, but people who refuse to do better are the truly evil people. He tells them the name of the man that killed his father. Abraxas Montgomery Vitalis. The party assures him that they're there for him. Uh, he walks away again and starts to carve Vitalis's name on a tree. Glad turns to Zex and states, Ever since he's gotten that dagger, he's been acting real strange. Zex turns to Shanks, saying, You gave him that dagger, you have to deal with him. Shanks, noticeably, not pleased, but still says nothing back in return, and walks over to Kyver, accepting his duty to his comrade, followed closely behind by Wiakwa. Shanks and Wiakwa come in to de-escalate the tense situation. The archer speaks about having things in his past that he wishes could be different, that the whole group has terrible things that they regret. He specifically points to Atros as a prime example. Kyver gets in really close, asking what he is supposed to do about these human nobles from his past. What is anyone supposed to do? 
Shanks leans in, speaking quietly and evenly. We bleed them out, real slow. I'm ready to bleed out all these motherfuckers, Kyra says in response. They agree that they'll do it together, but not before they finish the job in Barovia. All that Shanks asks for is the dagger. Though it is not said out loud, it is plain to Kyra that the rest of the group thinks it's affecting him. If you think it's fucking making me crazy, do what you must, the tabaxi proclaims, handing the dagger over to Shanks. But I'm telling you right now, he continues, the journeyman should have never given me that map. The two walk away from each other in opposite directions. Shanks backs towards Zex and Kyber off to go outside. Atros follows Kyber. Shanks wordlessly hands off the dagger to Zex, who walks over to Glad and places it inside the group's bag of holding. Weakwa, curious and wanting to help Kyber, asks if they can examine the dagger. After a little convincing, Glad relents and gives them the dagger to look at, under supervision. With a thorough check, Weakwa finds that this is a rare dagger and is heavily imbued with necromancy. And while the magic that it emanates is dark, it doesn't seem to have any curse or evil surrounding it. There appears to be no corrupting force. The druid tries to nick the dagger, but Glad catches them, politely but firmly telling them to put the dagger back where they got it. As Viaqua walks away, Glad continues to sip on her newly purified wine. Zex heads back over to Shanks, and the two discuss what they should do with the dagger. They both agree that the dagger may not be the source of the behavioral change, but it doesn't seem to be helping. They point out that if the journeyman doesn't seem to have an issue with it, it must be safe enough. Weakwa, who has been eavesdropping on the conversation, casually walks by and agrees. Zex delegates the task of keeping an eye on Kyber to Shanks, who just chuckles at the idea. You know how this group does with its charges, so I'm just gonna leave that alone, Shanks says. Fine, you take the dagger, Zex replies. Shanks tells him that he knows he favors his bow, and he already has a dagger. From there, the two discuss who should take it if Shanks won't. In the middle of this back and forth, Argal appears from the shadows, offering to temporarily exchange weapons. This pushes the debate further on who should take it. Zex decides that he's done with the debate and tells Shanks that it's his problem. None too pleased, Shanks walks outside to cool off, and Zex heads back to Damien, who is still outside and slightly stunned by all of this. They pick up the conversation about the crystals that are required to grow their wines. Atros confronts Kyber. He tells the assassin that he thinks he's justified, that the two of them agree on a lot of things. Kyber maniacally speaks about the blood on his hands and the idea of being saved. The Kanku asks what it even means to be saved, when the same horrible things happened to him and he had a choice of being saved or becoming a monster, he chose to become a monster, because he wanted his peace, not to wait to be saved. He speaks of not killing those to save his kind, but those he grew up with, the ones that he had pledged oaths with. Kyra confesses that he is no better, killing innocents in his past. Atros lets loose a torrent of information, growing up in the slums and swearing to form a guild with his Kanku brothers and sisters, 
being treated as scum and filth and then embracing it, taking any job, doing anything they needed to do to survive. They became the worst of the worst. Kyber asked Atros to do him a favor. From one fiend to another. Atros interjects. It's funny that you say, fiend. Kyber wants to become the boogeyman. The artificer says that he is aiming too small. Why not eradicate filth from everyone, not just humans? Purge evil with evil. Wash away the stains of old blood with more. What they don't realize is, once you have blood on your hands, you can't get rid of it. It's not about releasing darkness, but controlling it. Kyber admits that he doesn't want to control it. Atros tells him that there is a time and a place to burn everything down and start again. Instead of taking the hope in others away, why not find that hope and happiness again? He has sinned so much that he can only sin now? Atros believes that Kyber can still be redeemed. At one point, Kyber thought so too. But since he has been given the map to the nobleman's manor and his actions after, he doesn't anymore. Atos counters that the journeyman gave him a chance to truly be redeemed, to end things once and for all, and that the only thing that Kyber was doing was running away. Doesn't he want to end everything for all the other tabaxi that had to grow through what happened to him? The two vowed to help each other. Galahad and Sirius stand in the corner watching most of this unfold. They both speak of their faith. Sirius speaks candidly for the first time about his goddess, the Moonweaver. He fears that she will ask more of him than he can give. Galahad commiserates with that feeling. Sirius remembers his early years in his small town, that as chaotic as the adventurers that passed through there were, this party is a whole new level. Galahad gives the grave cleric the lowdown on some of the earlier days with the group and Kyver's exploits. Though he is new and barely knows him, he is worried about Kyver. Galahad is concerned for Kyber as well. What irks him is it's something about humans that seems to set the tabaxi off. It feels like he's dead set on doing something terrible. He hopes nothing comes of it, as he doesn't like the thought of having to intervene with Kyber. They both agree that even though they can understand the assassin's feelings, they're against the shedding of innocent blood. Shanks returns from the exterior of the winery, having sufficiently cooled off and asks Glad for the dagger. Glad acquiesces on the condition that Kyber doesn't get it back. Shanks assures her that it's not going back to him. With bloodlust in his possession, the archer heads over to Argyle. They have a short back and forth that results in a switch. Argyle takes bloodlust to test whether or not it is affecting its wielder, and Kyber will hold on to the Guardian's rapier. Once it's settled that the dagger is in a danger, they'll switch back. He then makes the exchange with Kyber, who accepts it. As the party comes back together, Galahad notices that the wine has gone to Glad's head. He goes to relieve her of this burden when Argyle asks for 10 minutes of fun before he sobers her up. We did an inside joke. Just 10 minutes. Shenanigans ensue involving Glad and Kyber singing and dancing around the winery until Galahad ends it. Eventually, they decide to head down to the Druids on Yester Hill instead of looking for Baba the Saga. On their way down, Zex and Wiaqua send their familiars up in the air to scout. 
The trail through the thick woods leads to a hill covered with dead grass and the cairns of black rock. Dark, ominous clouds gather high above, and a single bolt of lightning strikes the hilltop. West of the hill, the land, the woods, and the sky vanish behind a towering wall of fog. Dirt trails run along two concentric rings of cairns that encircle the hillside. Each cairn is a ten-foot-high mound of slimy black rocks. Atop the hill is a wide ring of black boulders and smaller rocks that collectively form a makeshift wall, enclosing a field of dead grass. Weyakwa pulls out the staff that was found within the winery. They tell Zex that this staff will allow them to appear as a friend to the druids and the blights. They have the idea of setting up an ambush and luring all of the people they can find on the hill into it. Make it quick and efficient. The party loves the idea, and the druid makes their way down the path to the bottom of the hill, Atros in tow. Walking up in a jovial manner, the druid successfully convinces one of the hidden foes to come out and speak to them. A spacey human man curiously walks over to the pair. Weakwa performs a couple of different smaller feats of magic and pulls two more from their hiding spots. The Janasi walks closer and asks why they were hiding. The one who emerged first, a man by the name of Chigo, tells Weakwa that it was what they were told to do, to ambush the party that was up at the winery. Weakwa and Chigo have an interesting conversation about when they joined the Borough of Druids. Chigo introduces the rest of the Druids that begin to come out of hiding. He seems jovial and upbeat. He talks about joining the group to eat and have people to protect him. Weakwa informs him that the Tree Blight has been defeated but the pair of them, Weakwa and Atros, were sent to resurrect it. Weakwa has Chico gather the rest of the druids in hiding to guide them to the ritual. Weakwa and Atros lead the druids into the kill box, having them form a circle for a great ritual. The pair slowly back away from the circle and begin to chant. This is the signal to the rest of the party. In a matter of seconds, the druids are decimated, including Chico. But Weakwa saw something in Chico, and tries to convince the group to resurrect him. The party is very much convinced by Weakwa, and Sirius steps forward to revivify the fallen druid. It's a tense moment for the cleric, as he hasn't had the best luck with this particular spell. Weakwa lets the party know that they want to talk to Chico before anyone else. The ritual is successful, despite Sirius's fears, and Chico comes back to life. Weakwa explains to the druid that this was all an elaborate test put forth by the Wild Mother. The rest of the party, except for Kyver, reinforces this notion as Kyver looks around at the abject horror and carnage that has just transpired. Chico informs the group that the tree that they had just fought has one of the crystals uh, that the party is looking for. Uh, Weakwa immediately sends Franchise to retrieve the crystal, uh, followed quickly by Duo. He also tells them that there is a cursed tree on the opposite side of the mound, uh, telling them that they need to uproot it in order to destroy it. It has protection, so they should be ready. Uh, the party decides that the best course of action is to take out the tree and then go from there. As they weave their way up the path and through the cairns, a voice on the wind catches Shank's ear. Long have I waited, it says, for one who is worthy 
my spear hungers for blood. Retrieve it and rule these mountains in my stead, just like the mighty warriors from the early days of the Whispering Wall. Shanks relays what he's heard to the rest of the group. He's drawn to one of the cairns. With some help from the rest of the party, he's able to uncover a long decayed body clutching a spear. Atros casts the Identify spell on it, and he finds that it is the Blood Spear of Kavan, and Shanks decides to keep it with him. They continue to the top of the hill, seeing a splintered base of what was once a carved wooden statue. Chico explains that it was a statue of Strahd before the ritual to make the tree blight. Uh, further down the path, they see a small grove with a gnarly looking tree. Uh, Chico says that this is the tree that they need to take out. It's the one that's continuing to make all the blights. Uh, he also asks to stay behind at the top of the mound because he uh, doesn't want to be near it. Uh, after a short bit of planning and punning, uh, Kyver and Wiakwa make their way down towards the tree. Kyver loses his footing though and falls, and upon getting up he begins to sprint towards the tree and the blights surrounding it. There's a fierce battle between the majority of the party and the blights. Atros though sits back out of the radius of the conflict and uh, uh, starts to sip some tea with Chico. But he doesn't like the direction that the fight is taking, so he sends Gilead into the fray with his Eldritch Cannon attached to her. Uh, there are some back and forths, uh, but the tide eventually does shift in the party's favor. Uh, at this sort of turn of events, Atros walks back to Chico and sits down for some more tea. Uh, near the end of the battle, however, a figure appears at the top of the mound. Strahd stands, amused, watching the battle take place. And with a rapid pace, the fight ends, and tension grips the air as the rest of the party makes their way back up towards Strahd, with the exception of Zex. Atros tries to calm the situation down, and starts a dialogue with the vampire. He doesn't seem too pleased that the party is in league with the uh, Martikovs, the were-ravens. Uh, he questions the party's motives, and he reveals that he is actively trying to remove the were-ravens from Barovia. He was part of the ritual to make the tree blight, and he is in league with the druids. Galahad speaks up and tells the vampire that they were merely trying to help the folks in the villages, giving them the small pleasures to help keep them going. Atro sees an opportunity to keep on Strahd's good side, and tries to make it seem like the party is there to help. Strahd is resistant at first, telling the party that he has eyes on them at all times, that he saw that they were able to leave, and decided to come back. The party asks outright what Strahd wants. He replies that he wants to stay in control. Atros ingratiates himself toward the vampire, speaking about losing a lost loved one. Kyver decides to make a move on Strahd, but is shut down pretty quickly, actually. Uh, eventually, they come to an agreement. As a wedding gift, the party will bring the head of a were-raven to him on a platter, and he will leave them be. He lets the party know that Irina is very excited about her wedding day, and thanks them for bringing them together. 
Jinx asks about Strahd's thoughts on the Abbot. He confesses that he has kept him around for the sheer enjoyment of corrupting him. The vampire alludes to the group that they are not what they seem. And with this, he vanishes into the mist surrounding the mound. Sirius, who has only just met Strahd for the first time, asks what that was all about. Atros gives him uh, a rundown of their relationship with Strahd through a series of illusory pictures in uh, magical tinkering. Eventually, the party heads back down to the tree, uproots it, and lights it on fire. Uh, underneath, they find a decayed body clutching a battle axe. Atros identifies this magical battle axe named Treebane that deals extra damage to plant life. The tavern then appears at the top of the mound and the party heads in. On their way inside, Wiakwa asks Chico uh, where they can find the were-ravens. Chico remembers that they're mainly split between two places, the winery and the town of Velaki. The party then invites Chico into the tavern. Kyver, obviously distraught from the happenings of the last few hours, uh, makes his way straight to the bar and begins demanding food and drink from Welby. And the halfling isn't overly pleased by this, and neither is the rest of the party. They ignore Kyver and uh, tell Welby about their situation with Chico. Welby, after hearing all this, responds, well, If he can cook, I don't give a fuck if he's bad. Uh, he pulls the druid into the back uh, to show him the kitchen. At this point, the journeyman enters into the conversation. The party informs JM about the trouble that they're having with Kyver. Their theories about potentially being uh, it being the dagger that's causing everything, or maybe something else. Uh, they tell her about Chico and how they've convinced him to join them, eventually leading to a conversation about the deal that they struck with Strahd to keep a, a brawl from breaking out. Uh, after a bit more conversation, she heads up to Kyver. Making her way in, she sees the tabaxi with a far-off stare and a crooked smile. They have a hard conversation about everything that has been transpiring recently. Jane pushes for information, wanting to help him. Kyver breaks and asks why she gave him that map. She matches his energy and tells him that she did it so that he could have revenge. She gave him the thing that he coveted the most in the world so that he could avenge his family. But he's just going to throw it all away? He's going to alienate her and the people who would be the ones to help him? A deep sadness overtakes Kyver. He feels like he's a danger to everyone. He recounts the vision of his death at the beginning of their time in Barovia. He speaks about voices constantly hounding him. He believes that his soul is black and damned. She tells him that he needs to focus on his feelings and find balance again. That he needs to make amends with the people around him. As the journeyman heads upstairs to speak with Kyver, the rest of the party sits in the tavern area. A new section has been added to the interior with a second fireplace and lounge-type chairs. Atros, frustrated with the party, silently makes his way up to his room. The party asks for drinks and Welby delivers. Shanks slips away to follow the journeyman and eavesdrop on the conversation with Kyver. As the party drinks their ales, coffee, and water, the party discusses the situation with Kyver and the new development with Strahd. 
Wee Aqua brings up the forged wedding invitation for the Abbot. Galahad mentions that they are now expected to deliver heads to the vampire lord of Barovia. The druid suggests faking their deaths. As they are discussing this, they realize that Shanks is not in the room. Weakwa runs to find the archer, and they meet on the stairs to the second floor. Shanks narrowly dodges the Genasi as they speed towards him. Eventually, the party all make it back down to the tavern, except for Atros and Kyber. Chico presents everyone with their new creation, chicken and waffles. It's an instant hit. Shanks is distraught about some of the things going on. He doesn't think that Kyber's problems are related to the dagger, and that they are most assuredly emotional. The party wants to help, but they also want to see some kind of effort of change from Kyber, at least from their perspective. Shanks agrees and asks what the party thinks about their new deal with Strahd. Zex brings up the idea about asking the abbot to make them a raven's head in exchange for an invitation to the wedding. Shanks is immediately apprehensive. He's not sure that the party can trust any of the other parties that we're actively making deals with. The journeyman joins in the conversation. The party questions some of the things that they've recently seen from Strahd, his ability to disappear from where he is. The journeyman speaks about different vampire abilities and their shape-shifting properties. Zex, thinking on his knowledge of the undead, tells the group about some of the inherent weaknesses of vampires. Their aversion to sunlight and running water, their ability to climb and walk on walls, how they must be killed where they rest otherwise they will regenerate and return, and that radiant damage in holy water or oil inhibit their regeneration. All of a sudden, things begin to take shape, plans begin to form. With some tentative plans in place, the party decides to try and help Kyber. Glad makes her way up to the tabaxi and Shanks tags along as support. Glad starts by saying, Look, you reached out to me for help and I didn't know how to help you, but I'm willing. I see that you're in deep pain and trying to get through it. We have a lot of battles to fight still, and I think I speak for all of us when I say we want to be by your side. We don't want you to be consumed by this rage, so please help us help you. Kyver quickly makes his way to Glad and stares her down, only to break eye contact and put his head down on her shoulder, letting out a small sob. Behind him, Shanks gestures to Glad, who doesn't know how to react, that he might want to be pet. She awkwardly pets Kyver on the head, unsure of what is going to happen next. In a quiet and even tone, Kyver says, If you expect me to purr... Glad interjects his statement with, Listen Kyver, we just want to comfort you, help you, heal you. We want to figure this out so we can fight shit together again. Shanks chimes in that he identifies with a lot of what Kyber is feeling, and that he doesn't necessarily know what to do to help him. They both express that they want to help, and have him open up about what they can do. The conversation seems to end with a hug and a thank you from the tabaxi. But Kyber then opens up about his past to the two elves, the slavery, the fighting tournaments, and everything in between. While this conversation is taking place upstairs, Wee Aqua has a chat with the journeyman downstairs. They bring up the staff being wielded by her, asking what it is. They identify it as the staff of Dunamancy. The journeyman confirms that's what it is and that she is a chronology wizard. Wee Aqua then shows the journeyman the staff that they found at the winery. She tells the druid that this staff is bad news and they should not have it in the party. Wee Aqua senses that she's worried about it, getting it into the wrong hands and gives it to her. Journeyman lets them know that their scimitar is ready for them, along with Argyle's short sword and Galahad's greatsword. The conversation turns to what has been happening with the journeyman. She talks about having just dropped off another group on a different plane. 
The world that this other group is in is in a living sentient being. She tells them that it's currently known as Sloan and that members of the party are actually from this place. This is fascinating to Wiaqua and they eventually hug and end the conversation. Wiaqua takes a seat at another table and the journeyman heads to her office. The focus shifts to Galahad as he peers into the new lounge section of the tavern. He sees a familiar, older man sitting in one of the chairs. Galahad heads towards him. The two sit by the fire and discuss the happenings from the past week. Galahad comments on their cipher, to which Bothok replies that his sword is not the only weapon he needs to keep sharp. A sharp blade will win you battles, but a sharp mind will win you wars. The old man says to the paladin. They speak about his sister, Tiamat, and how Bothok is unsure what her plans are, but he knows that something nefarious is happening. The conversation flows, inevitably, to Galahad's oath and tenets. Bothok speaks of these tenets as things that shouldn't be taken in a literal sense. Though it is within the culture of the Goliath to follow them as physical things to do, it is very possible that doing so would lead down a path of destruction. He suggests a more metaphorical approach. Galahad agrees, citing his time in the vaults as an awakening of his outlook and understanding of the Oath of Conquest. I believe that you can follow the tenets that you've chosen, but it must be the intent behind them. Much like words spoken, you can say one thing and mean another. Just as your tenets can purport one thing, but may intend another, Bothuck explains. He goes on to tell the paladin that spreading out his intention too much will make things harder to accomplish. He must focus on the task at hand before worrying about his sister and the other problems that face the planes. Make sure that the annoying blue one survives, Bothok orders. The two discuss this for a moment and Galahad agrees to keep Wiaqua safe but refuses to tell them of his charge. Bothok then opens up to questions from Galahad. Is there any insight of wisdom on the defeat of Strahd? The Goliath asks. Bothok leans in and says, It seems to me you have the answers right in front of you. It's a matter of arranging them in the correct order. You know how to take out Strahd. You know what can hurt him. You know what he wants is to stay in power. What are the tenets of your oath? Galahad replies with his tenets and Bothok queries how these would apply to the task of defeating Strahd. He encourages Galahad to discuss it with his party and to finish this task in front of him. His mentor, Antonius, needs the Goliath's help. With that, Bothok disappears from the tavern and Galahad contemplates his new information by the fire. As Galahad is off in the lounge, Shanks makes his way over to the journeyman's office for a chat he had been looking for earlier. He immediately notices that the interior of the office has changed since the last time he was there. More bookshelves and cases line the walls, and where the large desk was before, sits a lower table and two long cushions on the floor, flanking either side. She is sitting on the opposite side of the table from the door and beckons him to sit. Shanks, however, decides to stay standing. He pulls out his bow and begins to talk about his difficulties in utilizing its different properties of it. He's hoping that maybe the journeyman can augment the bow to work with his current abilities. Because he is Eldrin, regardless of if he's only half-elf, the bow feeds off of his innate magic. The evocation of elements is directly linked to his lineage. She continues, What was it that you said to me when we first met? You hate how I talk in circles? Yes, 
Shanks replies inquisitively. If I always talk in circles, would it then make sense that I would give you a magical item that requires you to think how to use it instead of just point and shoot? A bow called Mind's Eye? Shanks realized that the answer was staring him in the face the entire time. He apologizes for wasting her time and makes for the door. The journeyman isn't done, however, and uses her mage hand to close it right before he leaves. She explains if he wants more control over the bow, he has to have more control over himself and his mind. That what he needs more than anything is clarity. She questions if he feels like he's only good for doing damage and killing things. If that is somehow his only skill or purpose. How he decides to go about this is totally on him, but the bow will never reach its full potential until he finds the clarity he needs. Some sort of insight seems to reveal itself to Shanks as he gives her a nod and thanks her for the help. Meanwhile, Kyver invites Glad for a drink. She accepts very hesitantly, and on her way over to the bar, she notices a familiar tall figure. Breaking away from Kyver, she makes her way over to the protector. She asks about Kyver and if they're somehow linked. He says that their futures are linked in some way but not their past. The conversation turns to all of the different things that the group is trying to accomplish. He comments that she keeps odd company, but that she's also an odd duck herself. A traveling adventuring wood elf that is a cleric in a non-nature based region. It's what he likes about her. He encourages her to begin to wear her vestments again. Glad talks about the painful memories attached to them, leaving her home behind and losing her husband. Eventually, the conversation ends on a topic of Glad looking for her father and her fulfilling the need of finding out where she comes from. Getting up from his seat in the lounge, Galahad makes his way to the journeyman's office. Speaking in the office, Galahad asks about Kana's fury. She talks about tailoring the sword to his oath with Bahamut, that it will grow and become more powerful the further into his journey he gets. He realizes that the scroll work on his blade is incomplete and there are more abilities to appear later on. The party takes this downtime as an opportunity to figure out a few things about their motives on this mission. Uh, Zex makes his way down uh, to the workout area, working with Duo on their link and timing examining his bow, his inner motivations, and his perspective on the situation at large. While this introspection occurs, he remembers feeling a, a seam somewhere on his bow. With this in mind, he starts going through maneuvers and movements with jack-of-all-trades. Again, he feels a, a seam on the handle area and finds that one of the decorative symbols has risen slightly from the rest of the bow. Putting pressure on this symbol, it clicks down and begins to bend the bow back in on itself. The string loosens, and the center of the bow folds, disconnecting into two short swords. He heads up to the journeyman's office and inquires about what he's just figured out. She concedes that she had a part in this design, and remembers that Zex had wanted a bow that acted like a short sword. So why not have a bow that acted like two? They converse a little bit more, and almost everyone decides to make their way to bed. Sitting in their room, Wiaqua listens intensely to his armor, having heard something before. 
they begin to hear whispering in a language that they don't understand. But they start to pick out phrases. Eventually, though, they do fall asleep, repeating the phrases that they heard in their mind over and over again. While the rest of the party sleeps, Sirius receives another vision from the Moonweaver. In a very similar situation to their last meeting, a bright and massive moon sits on the horizon. A silhouette of a woman darkens the light emanating from it. As he walks closer, he's able to see familiar features of the figure. This is his wife, Valencia. It can't be, he thinks. She's been lost. She seems out of sorts. She's unaware of the things that have transpired. Sirius explains in detail that she's been cursed and that he is trying to find a way to get her back. He promises that he'll never give up because he knows that she'll never give up either. They embrace and cry together as the vision fades into black. Meanwhile, Atros has an entirely different encounter with someone unexpected. A small albino child suddenly appears in his room, unmoving like a statue. He questions the child, who responds that they are a messenger for Elrin. Atros questions further, why are you here? The child tells the artificer that their mutual friend wishes to bestow power upon him, that of a devotee, a cleric. Atros, clever as always, asks if there is a catch. The child confirms that there is, and that he must deliver a gift to a member of his party. Upon the delivery, he'll be granted his new abilities, powers from the domain of death. A small, smooth red stone is produced and is meant to help his friend, Argyle. Atras takes the stone and casts Identify on it, and at the end of the ritual, he finds that it is called the Light of Elrin, and is meant to be used as an added protection for the bearer. He thanks the child, telling them that their friend would be very appreciative of this gift. They discuss their master a bit, and Atros asks if they need to be escorted out. They thank the Kenku, but decline the offer. And as soon as Atros turns away from the child, they're gone. Atros contemplates what just occurred for a moment, and then makes his way to sleep. While the rest of the party sleeps, Shanks comes out of his trance, as you know, elves don't have to do full eight hours of sleep, and makes his way uh, to the workshop. Working diligently through the early morning, he is successful in distilling the halfling coffee down to its purest form. However, to make it easier to transport and consume, he needs to find a natural binder of some sort to add to the mix. Kyber, the next morning, taking the talk he had with the journeyman to heart, tries to make friends with sex. Wanting to bond with the other tabaxi, he shares uh, tidbits about his life. Zex is understandably hesitant about the whole situation. As awkward as it is, uh, it seems incredibly genuine. 
he talks about life in his village and on his parents' farm. And Zex opens up a little bit more too and explains a bit more to Kyver about what he remembers from his early life. The tension remains, but things seem to soften a bit. Meanwhile, Argyle is in his room working on the forgery of the invitation to Strahd's wedding. He manages to pull off a near-perfect copy. As he's admiring his work, he gets a knock at the door. Atros is there and uh, is permitted to enter. Uh, he asks uh, about the forgery and he looks... He's unable to really distinguish between the two. Atros slides the Argyle the stone he received the night before. He explains the benefits of the stone, and Argyle accepts the gift. The rest of the party, including the Tiefling and Kenku, make their way down into the tavern. As they decide on what to eat, Galahad makes his way off to the training area. Uh, he spends time training uh, different battle maneuvers, uh, does some strength exercises, and also soaks in a hot spring that he finds. As the party eats, Kyver heads over to the journeyman's office. They get into a conversation about the direction that Kyver would like to go in with his personal development. Kyver questions her about magic and wizards. She encourages him to try and work towards this new goal of learning magic and understanding it. She goes as far as offering him a beginner's level book of magic. Read that, and when you're done, read it again. And when you're done, read it again. And when you're done, read it again. Memorize it, she tells Kyber. Kyber thanks her and heads off to find Argyle. He offers him a swing for his mother comments the other day and Argyle isn't interested so Kyver hugs him and that changes the tiefling's mind and he headbutts the tabaxi the Kyver apologizes for his earlier comments and Argyle accepts and leaves it at that and then tells him don't apologize if you're going to keep doing it over and over again because I'm not going to accept every time while the rest of the party continues their meals, Shanks heads to Chico, hoping to find a natural binder for his elven enhancement pills. Uh, Chico informs him that he can indeed help him with his problem. Uh, what he's been missing is a substance called acerbic gum. Now, once he adds it to the mixture, he should be able to press it into tablets. So, Shanks takes this acerbic gum back to the shop and is successful in making his pills. And while the archer is doing that, Atros comes into the workshop and makes a final batch of vile arrows. Once this is complete, uh, Shanks and Atros distribute the arrows amongst the rest of the group. The German comes out to the group uh, as they prepare to head back on their mission. She asks Argyle for the vampiric dagger, explaining that he will get his rapier back and that she has something for Kyver to replace the dagger. She heads into the vault with said dagger and comes out with what appears to be an 8-inch uh, onyx and ebony sword handle with a smooth ruby set in the center of it. She explains that this handle will manifest a blade for Kyver as long as he's proficient in wielding it. 
the conversation then turns to where the party should go next. There are several different plans that are thrown out there, but uh, the one that is settled upon is to try and set the abbot against Babala Saga. Uh, how they'll do it exactly, it's not quite clear, uh, but that is the goal in mind. Uh, in the meantime, however, they are going to head toward Velaki and search for the were-ravens and the dusk elf that was part of their tarot card reading. Uh, with that, they make their way out of the tavern and back toward the vineyard. Uh, there is where they find Damien and let him know their plan. Uh, Damien informs them that there are other members of his family up in the town of Velaki and to look for the Blue Water Inn. He explains that Babala Saga isn't someone who should be taken lightly. She is a staunch supporter of Strahd and will come if called. The party thanks him, hands over their crystal that they retrieve from the tree blight, and makes their way north. This story arc marks a major turning point for uh, several parts of the party. Looking at how things evolved from here, it's really no surprise uh, how the campaign has turned out uh, to be the way that it is. Um, thanks for, for joining us. Uh, if you have the opportunity, please check out our social media accounts on most of the major platforms. Just search for the Medusa's Cascade on the platform and give us a follow. Uh, as I said before, we'll have art and animatics uh, from the early phases of the animation project that has spawned from this campaign. Uh, it's some cool stuff and definitely worth your time checking out. Uh, also, if you're listening on a streaming platform, especially Apple Podcasts uh, or Spotify, please take a few minutes to rate, review, and subscribe. Doesn't seem like a whole lot, but it does help get the podcast out there for other people to discover and we would definitely appreciate the love and support. Uh, we'll see you next week for the first episode of Across the Plains. Uh, we will be talking about the uh, elven city of Luxembourg and uh, the week after for the next ARC episode. And uh, as always, safe travels and Happy New Year. <laughs>